Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doing Time show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa and I'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. Today on the show, there's going to be a very special broadcast. Um, over the weekend, um, I travelled to Sydney on behalf of the Doing Time show 3CR and recorded Deathscapes which is the name of a symposium and website launch um, in Sydney at The Settlement. And The Settlement is actually um, a place where Ray ja- Uncle Ray Jackson um, had a lot of events when he was alive um, on Aboriginal deaths in custody and other, other issues. And during this time, um, I was able to record some extensive material from this symposium and um, I wanted to bring that to you today. It's going to be done in about two or three shows because there is a lot of material. The version today that I'm going to be playing is edited. It's going to be edited, but um, listeners will be able to go onto the Deathscapes website eventually um, as Joseph Bugliesi and, and the team will put that on in full. Um, but obviously we cannot play everything on the show and it will also be available as an edited um, version on, on podcast and I will let listeners know details um, as soon as as soon as that happens. Now just to give you a little bit of a rundown on what is going to be played, um, it's going to be A Welcome to Country um, by Uncle Charles um, Chica Madden and there's going to be Introduction and Calling of Names um, there's also going to be guest speaker um, Carolyn Jackson and her sister. Um, and the chairs are going to be Sundrini Pera and Joseph Bugliese. And there will also be a panel, Responses to the Deathscape site. And on that panel there will be Bronwyn Carlson, Maria Janya Kopoulos, Hannah McGlade, and the moderator is Chris Kaneen. And so that's the first half that we played. And we also, I also did some, some uh, material also on um, a video message from Manus Island and that was presented by Michelle Bure. But we'll actually uh, play that later on. Um, there are also a couple of other panels, but I, I wasn't able to record everything. Um, but certainly I'll bring you this coverage first of all. Some bios will be, left, will be read out. Um, but in the meantime, I'm hoping that you'll be able to follow this recording. If there are any questions, please do not hesitate to contact me. 
um, Marissa, 94198377 on behalf of the Do and Time Show or listen to the whole thing when it becomes available on the website. So here we go. Um, I'll, I'll play that right now. And that was recorded on Saturday the, the 17th of February 2019. And here we go. Um, we would like to begin by inviting Craig Madden to give uh, the welcome to country. Um, thank you very much, Cindy. Um, uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Craig Madden. Firstly, I'd like to thank Cindy and Joseph for inviting me here to welcome you all on the country. Um, I'm a proud Gadigal Bunjalung man from the Eora Nation, and Gadigal land is the land that we stand on here today. Jinura Gadigal. This land, this place is Gadigal. I'd like to pay our respects to our elders, both past, present, and emerging. Um, it is customary for Aboriginal people to invite guests or visitors onto our land or country, so I stand here before you today as a proud Gadigal man and a member of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council and welcome you all onto Gadigal land, Aboriginal land. The Gadigal clan is one of 29 clans which make up the Eora Nation, a nation that is bound by three distinct landmarks. So we've got the Hawkesbury River up in the north, the Nepean River out to the west and the Georges River to the south. And within the confines of those mighty rivers, like the Eora uh, Nation, and Gadigal Clan is one of the 29 clans which make up that nation. If we have any Aboriginal brothers and sisters here today, any brothers and sisters from the Torres Strait, welcome to Gadigal Land, Aboriginal Land. To all our non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters here today, a warm and sincere welcome to Gadigal Land, Aboriginal Land. Um, if, uh, if you have any visitors from across the seas today, welcome to Gadigal Land. We've travelled from across this great country, great state, and this magnificently beautiful city on this wonderful day. Welcome to Gadigal Land. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to Uncle Ray. I understand that this is a place where he held a lot of his forums, which um, I hold dearly and close to my heart, but when I was kid, we used to run and throw bags in, in home after school. My brother would grab him down here and we'd play here for hours. And we get a trample and rock where these people are sitting and we jump up and hold on to that and swing. We <laughs> rolled out about nine or ten at the time, and many, many years ago. So, um, but then I, you know, I was talking to Bronwyn about the website also, and she was telling me all about Deathscape. And I've worked in the uh, Aboriginal Justice Department for the last 15 years. I started out as a, as a welfare officer at Long Bay Jail. So I saw firsthand the trauma that is attached to what a death in custody can do to family, but more importantly to, f- to friends, and, but more importantly to family. And how that can, the violence that has been predicated throughout our society, our Aboriginal society, all the way through. And what, dealing with social issues, and I look forward to going back and looking at the website myself. I'm so sorry that I can't be here for much longer, but I can't report the jerks back after this, but I'd love to, I look forward to looking at the website, and I saw things really adjusted about you know, I'm now with uh, community corrections, passing on the information to our parole officers so they can have, they can see and be able to empathise with our mob about some of the social issues that involves around real, um, real violence. Um, they struggle at times with attaching themselves to our mob, so I look forward to, to that. Um, so on behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council and our Gadigal mob, 
Um, I hope you enjoy the uh, forum here today. And once again, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'd like to give a special welcome to Marissa Spasaro from 3CR, who runs the Doing Time program that reaches out to prison uh, communities and, uh, and uh, challenges both the Settler State and the Prison Industrial Network. Uh, Marissa is recording this for her listeners and uh, she'll be recording this throughout the day and then it will be uh, put on there on 3CR for community radio. And we'd like to say thanks to Marissa for coming all the way from Melbourne to record this show. That was lovely of you. Thank you. Is uh, Uncle Ray Jackson, and uh, I'm happy to say that we're honoured to have uh, two of his children here, um, Carolyn Jackson and Francine Jackson, who will speak in a moment to uh, pay homage to this pivotal figure. And uh, Uncle Ray Jackson is a pivotal figure in uh, both our lives for, for, for decades. Uh, and he was particularly pivotal in helping us to formulate this project because he always foregrounded the fact that the theft of Indigenous sovereignty in this country connected to things that people wouldn't normally connect to, and that is not only Indigenous deaths in custody and the way in which the prison industrial complex uses the carceral system as a way of breaking up family, breaking up community, destroying the languages, destroying the connections to land, attempting to do that by siphoning off Indigenous people and killing them within the custodial systems, the carceral system. He also connected how that theft of sovereignty is also pivotal in creating the border violence that impacts on asylum seekers and refugees. Joseph, over here. So, critically, um, this is the place, which is why we want to hold it here, where Uncle, Jack, uh, Uncle Ray Jackson not only held the fora and public events marking Indigenous deaths in custody and giving a space to families to mourn, to grieve, to shout, and to articulate their anger and their call for justice. In the same space he also held, and I know there are a number of people here who uh, contributed to those events, the Aboriginal passport ceremonies, where, as non-Indigenous people, he asked us to acknowledge uh, unceded sovereignty to country and to mark the different nations through which we walk when we travel across this land. At the same time, he used the passport ceremonies to offer welcome and hospitality to the people who were impacted, some seekers and refugees, by the brutal and violent border policies of our governments. And he would actually pen letters to the Prime Ministers saying, you are not speaking in my name, you have no right to arrogate my hospitality to refugees and asylum seekers. And uh, he not only sent uh, Aboriginal passports to places like Nauru and Manus and to the families of uh, some of the refugees who died. He also smuggled Aboriginal passports into places like Villawood Immigration Detention Centre to offer welcome and hospitality as an Indigenous elder. This is the space then that's so resonant and that marks the crossover between Indigenous custodial deaths, the theft of Indigenous sovereignty and um, asylum seeker and refugee deaths at the border. So without further ado, we would love Francine Jackson and Carolyn Jackson to come up and to say a few words of uh, marking the memory and the legacy of their father. Thank you.
Um, I'm reading from a script. Um, Carolyn and I thank Uncle Charles Chicken Madden for his warm welcome to country and for the welcome to Redfern in particular, which was our dad's old stomping ground. We are honoured to be able to represent our late dad at this event and we want to thank the Deathscapes team for their kind invitation. Our dad was a tireless social justice warrior. He fought to gain justice for those he saw as downtrodden and brutalised by the settler state. He fought to gain justice for the victims who were killed by the brutal prison and custodial systems of the settler state. And he fought to gain justice for the families of the victims who were left in the wake of the killing violence of our state. Over the last three decades, the key focus of our dad's social justice work was on working to end Indigenous deaths in custody. He was also concerned that the Australian government was using brutal border policies that incarnated Oh, sorry, incarcerated refugees and asylum seekers. As an Aboriginal elder, he repeatedly wrote damning letters to a number of Prime Ministers, calling them to account for their violent and often deadly refugee policies. And in so many of the public events he organised, he repeatedly invoked his welcome and duty of care to the refugees who had been imprisoned or dispatched to offshore detention centres. Dad would have been very proud of the Deathscapes project as it stands as a living legacy that continues his social justice passion to bring justice to those to whom it's been denied and to work to stop in all deaths in custody. Thank you. Thank you from the Jackson family as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Francine and Carolyn, for your wonderful words. And uh, we w- want to say that we were, we very, we were very sad that um, although Uncle Ray was, uh, uh, was with us at the time we made the application, uh, we sadly um, lost him just before the news of the success of the funding came through but um, his spirit permeates the Deadscapes project. Absolutely. So now we want to uh, move on to um, uh, the part of the program that we call Saying Their Names. And uh, we take this term, Saying Their Names, also because of the the transnational um, links of our project with the Say Her Her Name movement in the US and the Black Lives Matter movement. And we are going to have the members of the team, as well as Carolyn and Francine and Hannah, uh, come up and um, read the names with us. And I want to introduce Dr. Hannah McGlade, my uh, colleague from uh, Curtin University who is a member of our ethics advisory board and has also worked very closely with the team in Perth um, throughout the project. So please come up. This project is about state violence in the form of the deaths of racialized peoples in custody and we want to begin by marking the people who have died in custody over the three years of this project. The Deathscapes team will read the names with the following members that you've been introduced to. And uh, what we can say is that these are the names that don't appear on the Deathscapes project, but they are the names of the people who have died in such a serial, recursive manner 
over the last three years, and it shows the increasing escalation of deaths in custody, both in uh, Indigenous situations and at the border. So um, often the family asked not for the names to be given, but just um, the initials. So when we spell initials, it's in respect of the family's wishes. J.R., a 36-year-old man died in the Northern Territory Jail of acute water intoxication, olanzapine toxicity and schizophrenia. P.M.B., a 42-year-old man from Cape York, was found dead in his bed in a Queensland prison. E.Y., a 70-year-old man, died in hospital after having been illegally directed by police to leave his unit. R.J.G., a 41-year-old man, died in hospital in Alice Springs on medical issues. Steve Freeman, a Budgelong man, aged 24, died in an ACT jail of alcohol toxicity. Um, Rebecca Maher, a 36-year-old woman, died in a custody in a warehouse in Kisnock of causes yet undermined, undetermined. So. H.A.M., a 69-year-old man, died in custody in Queensland's Wilston uh, Correctional Centre after spending most of his adult life in jail. B.B., a 31-year-old man, was found hanging in his cell in Darwin Correctional Precinct. V.B., a 31-year-old man, was found hanging in his cell in Darwin... Oh, sorry. GLW, a 41-year-old old Koori man, died at Fulman Correctional Centre in Victoria from a heart condition. JBM, 44-year-old man, lost consciousness and died a short time after police decided to take him into protective custody at Vestais Beach in Darwin. Wayne Feller Morrison, 29-year-old, died in hospital three days after being involved in an altercation with at least five guards at Yatala Prison in South Australia. SB, a 44-year-old woman, died in custody while on remand at Bandiap Women's Prison as of yet undetermined causes. KJ, a 35-year-old man, died in the NT after being sentenced for five months jail for driving offences. And those are the Indigenous people who died in the first year of our project, uh, 2016. We are now going to read uh, uh, the people who died in custody in immigration detention in 2016, the first year of our project. Muhammad Nazri, on a bridging visa, hanged himself on a construction site as a result of mental health issues from time spent in detention and uncertainty surrounding his visa status. Robert Bergba died of a suspected heart attack in Villawood Immigration Detention Centre. Omid Masumali died from serious burns injuries in a Brisbane hospital after setting himself on fire in the Nabok settlement. Rakib Khan, following a suspected suicide attempt, suffered a series of heart failures and died on Nauru. Mohammed Hadi hung himself as a result of mental health issues from time spent in detention and uncertainty surrounding his visa status. Deepak Singh found dead in his car in Melbourne a suspected suicide linked to stress over a rejected permanency residency visa application. Saeed Hassan Lu died in Hobart where he was living in the community on a Chev uh, temporary visa. Camille Hussein drowned while swimming at a waterfall on Manus Island. Um, first day was living in the community in Perth on a bridging visa. The mother of a two-year-old son, she threw herself from sixth-floor balcony of her home. Uh, Faisal Ishak, 
Ahmed died following transfer to Brisbane Hospital from Manus Island Immigration Detention Centre following an affa- a fall and a seizure within the centre. In, t- in 2017, year two of this project, nine Indigenous people died in prison or police custody. Thank you, Francine. Died at Alice Springs Hospital in January 2017 of renal and liver failure while serving a mandatory life sentence. Chad Riley died after being tasered with a stun gun by police in a car park in East Perth. PR became unresponsive after being arrested, handcuffed and placed in a prone restrained position by South Australian police outside his house. Eric James Whitaker was involved in an unspecified incident while he was in an isolation cell in Parklea Prison, Sydney. He died two days later in Westmead Hospital. KG was arrested on one evening in August 2017 for allegedly breaching a court order. He was discovered unresponsive at 1.05am and declared dead. Tani Richard Chatfield died while on remand at Tamworth Correctional Centre awaiting trial. TMH from Tanjanjara was a backseat passenger in a car and detained by police after a chase in a blotter WA. He had a heart attack while being loaded into an ambulance and later died. Jordan Anderson, 23 years old, died in Fiona Stanley Hospital after being found hanged in a safe cell at Hakia Prison. Auntie Tanya Day was a 55-year-old grandmother who was taken into custody for public drunkenness after falling asleep on a train in Victoria. She was taken to Castle Main Police Station and within hours taken to hospital. She died 17 days later. In 2017, year two of this project, five people died in custody in immigration detention, including Matthew Taylor, died by suicide in New Zealand a year and a half after his deportation under the S501 of the Migration Act. Majid Hassan Lu was found dead in Sydney from a suspected drug overdose. Majid was released from detention in December 2015 but was not offered adequate support. Hamid Shamashripura was found dead in the forest near the Australian-run East Lurinja Refugee Transit Centre on Manus Island. Rajiv Rajendran died of suspected suicide found on the grounds of the Lurinja Hospital, Manus Island. Jahangir died in a motorbike collision. Reports from sources reveal he was run down on his motorbike on Flycamp Road in Nauru. In 2018, year three of this project, four Indigenous people died in prison or police custody. Patrick Flisher fell from the 13th floor balcony in his Waterloo public housing block while allegedly trying to escape police who came to arrest him over outstanding warrants. TK's family called police to their Townsville home in far north Queensland because they believed he was at risk of self-harm. Police arrived and allegedly speared, tackled uh, TK to the ground, pinning him in the dirt. He became unresponsive and could not be revived. JH was found hanged in his cell at Juni Correctional Centre in New South Wales two days before he was due to face court. SGVY collapsed at West Kimberley Regional Prison in Western Australia and was declared dead less than an hour later at Derby Hospital. His family has raised concerns that he was not receiving adequate treatment for an underlying health condition. In 2018, year three of this project, three people died in custody in immigration detention. Salim Kwawin died on Manus Islands from a supposed suicide attempt. 
Karabors Karami, aged 26, killed himself in the Australian-run regional processing centre on Nauru after suffering from years of deteriorating mental health. A Tamil asylum seeker died in hospital in Brisbane after he attempted to take his own life in hospital whilst being treated for depression. Sarawan Al-Jaheli died in hospital after attempting to take his own life at Yonga Hill Immigration Detention Centre, WA. So far in 2019, uh, as we prepare to conclude the Death Capes project, we know of no indigenous people who have died in prison or police custody. But we do know of one person, Musa, uh, who died in immigration detention at the Villawood Detention Centre, following a notice from Border Force that he was about to be deported. In this call of names, we have not included other forms of death by state violence, such as the deaths of those who drowned due to boat turnbacks or were dispatched into the unknown, strapped into so-called unsinkable lifeboats. We have only included those whose deaths in the community have been publicly documented. However, it's likely that others have died in despair in the community and in the unlivable conditions of urban remote communities. Uh, we would ask you all now please to stand for a minute's silence for these dead. Thank you. We wanted to do this call of names because we never want to lose sight of what we we wanted to do this um, saying of names because we um, never want to lose sight of what this project is about. But also, um, we want to mark that as this is a, a story of sadness and injustice, we also mark on every screen of the Deadscapes project the fighting spirit of resistance and the persistence of the call to justice, which is visible in so many ways on our site. We begin with three courageous fighting voices on our first panel. And we have apologies from Lorena Allen, who could not make it today. And uh, the chair for our panel, who will introduce um, our honoured speakers today, um, is Professor Chris Kinneen. And uh, both Samendi, myself and the team would like to mark what a true honour it is to have Chris here today. Chris has been inspirational to us over decades. He's been inspirational to our students. He's been inspirational to communities in unpacking in such an uncompromising, systematic way the mechanics of the settler state, its structural injustices, its killing violences, and his repeated calls for justice from a body of work that is international now in its reach and its significance. So thank you, Chris. If we get uh, Safta, Bron Bronwyn, Maria and Hannah to come up, um, that'd be great. Look, I'd, I'd like to start um, by acknowledging the traditional owners on whose land we're meeting today, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. And... Uh, and I want to stress the word nation um, because what it is is a statement of unceded sovereignty. And uh, as Savendra mentioned at the very beginning, this project is also very much about the issue of sovereignty, about contested sovereignties, about the way the settler state exercises sovereignty. And of course, deaths 
deaths in the hands of the state are, in a sense, the most uh, extreme exercise of uh, settler state sovereignty while at the same time denying the sovereignty of Indigenous people and refugees at the border. Um, it's really, um, I don't know if I want to use the word pleasure, but it's really a great honour anyway to be uh, involved, uh, very marginally, but to have some involvement with um, the Deathscapes uh, site. And I'll just be very brief, but I'll just make uh, one other comment. I mean, one of the things that's really, I guess, surprised me and shocked me over the last two decades has been the lack of systematic attention uh, to the issue around deaths in custody, either at the border or here uh, in the institutions of the criminal justice system. Uh, and I say that given you know, all the work that was done by the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, um, which reported now in, in 1991, so nearly 30 years ago, um, you know, the, the only things that kind of spring to mind was some very good reporting by Inga Teng in 2011 in Crikey, which was a systematic look at deaths in custody in New South Wales, um, and the recent work by The Guardian, and, and you know, it was unfortunate that Lorena uh, couldn't be here today to talk about that, uh, and of course the Deathscapes project, um, the Deathscapes site. Certainly we've had cam campaigns, many campaigns around individual deaths in custody, but what's been missing is a systematic look um, of what's been happening, particularly over the last couple of decades, and so the Deathscapes team uh, really need to be congratulated for, for the work that they've done. Okay, so... Um, so we're going to run this as a panel. Um, I've just got a couple of questions that I'm going to ask um, each of our panellists, and um, then we'll have some time at the end. Um, I think we haven't actually talked about this, but I think, we'll, shall we just go through it in alphabetical uh, order, if that's okay, which would be Safta first, then Bronwyn, then Maria, uh, and then Hannah. Um, there is uh, in the program a, uh, a more fulsome description, if you like, of each of the, of the speakers, um, but I'll just introduce them briefly uh, as we start. So Safta, um, Safta Ahmed is a, a Sydney-based artist, uh, academic and community art worker. Uh, he won a Walkley Award for documentary web comment, comic, Villa Wood Notes from an Immigration Detention Centre. He's a founding member um, of the non-profit uh, community art organisation, Refugee Art Project, in which he conducts regular workshops with asylum seekers and refugees in Western Sydney. Um, Bronwyn is a uh, Professor of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. Um, she's a durable woman, um, from New South Wales. Uh, she's also uh, won a Stanner Award for her PhD um, and received uh, some, a couple now, two uh, Australian Research Council grants to further her work, um, particularly around uh, Indigenous identity, Aboriginal identity uh, and the online community. And she's the author of a book, The Politics of Identity, Who Counts as Aboriginal Today? Uh, Maria, Maria Giannakopoulos is a senior lecturer um, in socio-legal studies and criminology uh, in the College of Business, Government and Law at Flinders University. She has a law and cultural theory um, background and conducts interdisciplinary research around areas of sovereignty, colonialism and border politics. And she's currently writing a book for Palgrave called Sovereign Debt, Austerity 
and the endurance of colonialism. And Dr. Hannah McGlade is a senior Indigenous research fellow at Curtin University. Uh, she's the author of the book Our Greatest Challenge, Aboriginal Children and Human Rights, and she received a Stanner Award um, in relation to that book for excellence in Aboriginal research. She specialises in human rights and she was recently appointed uh, Senior Indigenous Fellow uh, for the UN um, Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in 2016. And she's also been at the forefront of establishing legal support services for Aboriginal women impacted by family violence and sexual assault in Western Australia. Okay, so Safta, um, yeah. given that we're, we're launching the Deskapes site today, I was wondering then if you could um, just speak a little bit about one aspect of the site that you've found uh, most significant. Sure. Um, first, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, pay my respects to the elders past and present, and also um, say what an honour it is to be speaking here today, and a big thanks to the Deathscapes team. It's a um, real honour for me to be a part of the advisory panel to this project because I think it's such an important um, project for putting sites uh, in context and I suppose the site that the part of the website which I um, would like to talk about and the site that I have the most experience with is the Villawood Detention Centre um, and so I Again, visiting Villawood um, in late 2010 um, in a voluntary capacity with the Refugee Art Project, which is a non-profit community art organisation. Um, and we went into Villawood and basically began doing art workshops with asylum seekers and refugees there in detention. And um, I think the part of the site that deals with Villawood is particularly good because it provides a timeline and it provides good context for thinking about the Villawood Detention Centre. So that timeline beginning with um, Aboriginal sovereignty over the land, which is a continuous aspect. Um, also talking about acts of resistance to the colonial state through the years of Villawood as a migrant hostel um, after the Second World War. And then of course the most recent period since the 90s um, when it became uh, a detention centre or a place of indefinite detention, particularly since 2001, um, in which it's been a place of incarceration and punishment. And so I think that timeline and that context is very important for thinking about Villawood, but also the acts of resistance to um, the colonial project. Um, particularly um, Indigenous and Aboriginal resistance to white settlement, but also even during the years of Villawood as a migrant hostel, the conditions for migrants who were there um, wasn't always fantastic. There were many acts of um, resistance to the state. And of course, more recently, um, as a detention center, there's a long tradition of protest in Villawood, particularly rooftop protests, um, when people have been pushed to a point where they just felt they weren't being heard or listened to and their cases were going nowhere and they were being rejected and their processes were being frozen. Um, so there's been a number of, of that. Villawood has changed recently. After there was, a, there was a particularly large protest and riot and fire, which many of you may remember, in 2012. And after that, um, it's gone through a series of renovations 
Um, and I think uh, the government um, cares about the aesthetic presentation of a camp like Villawood. It used to have razor wire um, around the perimeter fences, which was very visible to anyone who visited, but that was taken down in 2005, replaced with electric wire and other you know, ways of keeping people in. Um, and now it looks like any other big government sort of facility. Um, but of course, the renovations are particularly designed to stop acts of protest, to stop anyone being able to climb up on the roof or do anything, you know, to, to sort of visibly show um, dissatisfaction. Um, I think um, the use of creative work on the website is particularly important, the inclusion of artwork and poetry and writing and oral testimony um, is crucial. Um, and that addresses the politics of representation. So refugees in the media, of course, um, are, are demonised by our government and criminalised by the Department of Border Protection, but also often reduced even by refugee supporters, I think, to um, sort of a one-dimensional status as refugee. Often people are just reduced and seen only through the lens of their experience of persecution and flight. Um, and that, for some people, can be equally dehumanising. Um, and so I think a part of that has to do with the way white Australia likes to see refugees. The perception is that to be a genuine refugee, you need to be in a state of abject suffering. You need to be um, someone sort of passively receiving our generosity. Um, and so often they're just sort of, I guess, reduced to the status of being victims or the objects of suffering. And so to include um, artworks and, and aspects of cultural expression, to underscore the agency of people in, in detention, of refugees who come to Australia, is very important because people are more, of course, than just their experience of um, becoming a refugee. And I think it's important that the to go back to the issue of resistance, people's expression of agency takes many forms. And so it can be, you know, cultural activities, the insistence, for instance, of Sri Lankan Tamils in Villawood to take the bland chicken that they're given for dinner and to recook it with lots of chilli and lots of spices and to make it something more familiar to them. So those are everyday acts of resistance, if you like. I can't remember what else I was going to say, so for now I'll leave it. I'll leave it. Thanks. So, um, no problem. Uh, we could turn to you and uh, you could uh, comments about the site in terms of uh, what you see as being, I suppose, one of the most significant things for you. Okay, thank you, Chris. Um, firstly, I would just like to acknowledge we're on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, it's important that we understand um, that this place has a very deep history, uh, particularly in the Redfern area, of protest and activism and an effort to stay alive. I mean, a lot of the organisations in this local area were formed um, as an act of resistance against the colonial state who continued to oppress, discriminate and violently um, act towards ridding this landscape of um, Aboriginal people. Many Aboriginal people came to this local area after uh, the 1967 referendum, of course, which um, allowed Aboriginal people then to move more freely across this country after being locked in concentration camps and 
detention centres similar um, to what we see in, um, being in, imposed upon um, refugee communities. And so this community um, in this local area is made up of many nations of people, so I'd like to pay my respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are in this place here. But I'd also like to acknowledge Uncle Ray, who I never had um, the good fortune to meet, but I feel that I um, know him somehow through this project, through the words um, from Joseph, who have spoken so dearly about him, and of course from hearing from his um, children today, um, which has been absolutely wonderful. It's really good as an Indigenous person to situate ourselves in a space with the voices of those who have come before us. Um, just to clarify, I'm not a Dharawal person. Um, I acknowledge Dharawal country because that's, that's, that's where I was born um, and have grown up my whole life. And I, I know a, a debt to Dharawal people for allowing me to be on country. So I guess the site was really powerful for me to see when Joseph first introduced it to me. And I had a look at it, and overwhelming grief was one of those emotions which I kind of feel right now um, listening to all the names. Um, my own son had suffered from some mental illness. And my only um, way of dealing with that in times of crisis was to have to call the police. Um, that's terrifying. Um, he would be taken away and I would, I would say, um, I need you to know that he's Aboriginal in some way that that might save him. But it also scared me because that might kill him. I'm glad that didn't happen. So this site, um, after looking at it again and again, always raises such deep emotion. But I was particularly drawn to violence against um, Aboriginal women. So part of what I do is teach Indigenous studies. Um, and I raise this as an issue. And a lot of people just don't get it. And they say, how come it's still an issue for Aboriginal people? And just um, yesterday, one of the um, high-ranking um, professors of law at the institution I work at said, I just don't get it. How can it still be an issue? And I'm going to be forwarding the site to that person. And that scares me endlessly to think that this is a person who's producing the people who will now work in law, who will come up against Indigenous people and think to themselves, what's their problem? Why should I give them any kind of compensation in the space? And I remember when I was doing my honours, I was looking at Aboriginal women's experiences um, in prison. And I was really interested in this from a sociological perspective. So the kinds of things that Indigenous women faced before they even got to this point. And so I was fortunate enough to know an Aboriginal lawyer in Nowra who uh, allowed me to come along to a um, hearing of an Aboriginal woman um, from that local area. And so I sat and listened um, to the woman's story. Um, I got to speak to her as well. And she told me about the kinds of things that she had suffered in her life. So she, she, she had um, stolen generation members in her family, including her own children who had been taken at a different time. Um, she had been a victim of gross domestic violence. And I asked her about help seeking. And she said to me that seeking help from official organisations was pointless because they viewed her as less than human. And I could see that was the case. She had um, been hit in the head with a hammer and suffered a brain injury. She had been physically, sexually, and violently assaulted throughout her life. It was devastating to hear her story. 
So she was up on a charge of a, a violent crime of which she didn't commit. She, um, of course, suffered from this brain injury which impaired her um, sense of what was happening to her in her life. She entered a shop with her partner of the time who had been a perpetrator of that violence, a non-Indigenous man, and she went to buy a bag of lollies. He held up the shop. She was also charged with, um, you know, that um, aggravated robbery. And so um, one thing that really resonates with me about Miss Du and um, Miss Daly and um, the other people who were represented in the site was what happened in the court. The judge said, and I just remember it so clearly to this day, your Aboriginality won't be used as a defence in my court. And I've really never forgotten that because I thought, wow, you've just literally wiped out this woman's entire identity and history, which is linked to all of that violence. The fact that she was an Aboriginal woman was the reasons for all of those things that had happened to her. Because if she had been non-Indigenous, she would have been able to seek help and attract help in a much different way. And I'm not saying that all non-Indigenous people um, who are sufferers of domestic violence have the ability to get help either. That's not the case. It really is an issue for women across this country. Um, she actually died in custody a little time later. And I thought to myself, if that judge had handled that a little bit different, um, things might have been different for her. And so that really led me to being interested in that politics of identity and how it functions. And so if we think about colonial violence, one of the... the the things that have happened in Australia is the ridding of Aboriginal people across these lands. It's been a systematic approach. Violence in many forms. But in contemporary times, that politic of identity is being used to also rid the country of us in various ways, through mass incarceration, to denying who we are and denying our history. And like that lawyer at um, my institution who said he just doesn't get it. He doesn't get it because people are not taught in our education system about the realities of life for Indigenous people in this country. And I think the site is a fabulous teaching resource. And I'll be ensuring that my students um, have to go on here and select a case study and think about it more deeply and to really you know, feel the impact. But this has a long history. And I want to read you a quote um, from some of the research I had, which will help frame the way in which Indigenous women are actually thought of in this country. So this is an interesting quote. So in my research, I came across this newspaper article from 1984, so in living memory. So this is about an 83-year-old, Xavier Herbert. So he won the, the Miles Franklin Award. That's, the, that's Australia's most prestigious literary prize, and he is revered as an elder statesman of Australian literature. In the article, he was quoted boasting that he was the biggest gin rooter around. And for those people who aren't aware, gin is a derogatory term to refer to Aboriginal women. And this is what he said. We used to go up to Broome for our holidays, and I knew all through Western Australia, black velvet was the thing. It changed a lot in recent years, but the perfect mate for the bushman was the black girl. The pearling industry was established in Broome, and the pearlers needed, got used to go up to the Kimberley country and steal the young Aboriginal girls to work as pearl divers. Of course, they used to rape them too, and when they got pregnant, they'd chuck them overboard. The killing of Aboriginal women has a long history, a long revered history where 
the colonial perpetrators of this violence are revered and revere in their actions. And I think this site brings to the fore those kind of issues. Thank you. Thank you. Great. What does this site mean? It means quite a bit. Um, I'm going to start off with um, repeating what the ultimate aim of the site is, and that is to end deaths in custody. So Deathscapes then with that aim is born from and is helping to engender profound new forms of scholarly activism. So I've had the great privilege of knowing and working with Joseph and Savendi for decades now, and I can see how every part of their groundbreaking skill set finds a home in this project, in the way that they've conceptualised it, organised and managed the project and worked with their great team for now, but also for the life of the project going forward beyond its funded stage. So it's an ARC project... Uh, but it's much more than that because it's a project that has been built inclusively to affect social change on the most pressing questions of injustice. And so I'm certain that this project or this mode of organising people with common goals and ideas is really only the very beginning. So with this in mind, I want to share what I believe to be so significant about this site within a university context, in particular in the teaching of criminology. So I have a law background. Um, you know, it's always very sad to hear such things about, you know, what law professors say. Um, but I teach criminology. And I'm working at a university that for the last two years has been in the grips of a major restructure. So what I want to say about this is that when universities expand their markets at the same time that academics in a whole range of contractual employment situations are pressured to do more for less, the way that our students are served becomes impoverished. So I'll say something later about um, my research on questions of austerity and sovereign debt. But for now, I want to say that thinking about these concepts has triggered me to begin speaking about the austerity university. So when academics are controlled by force of law, no less, i.e. through the Fair Work Act that tries to limit um, the amount of industrial action that can be taken, the locations from where critical and politically engaged work may emerge are all the more important. So I teach a course called Crimes Against Populations. A few years back, the course was called Legal Fictions, Race, Crime and Sovereignty, but I was forced to change the name because it needed to be more criminology because crim just sells so much better. The course examines the ways in which populations are targeted for punishment in the absence of having committed any crime, people having committed any crime. So in other words, we interrogate criminalisation practices. So the course deliberately departs from understandings of crime which, posit the, which say that the individual is the perpetrator of crime against another individual and therefore symbolically um, trespasses or um, makes harm against society as a whole. So in the course, we examine the idea that crime or wrongdoing against populations can also be perpetrated by those in power charged with the responsibility for the protection of peoples. So in this approach to crime, the concepts of colonialism, race, sovereignty, state power and austerity are all incredibly crucial. So I focus in particular on the punishment of Indigenous populations in the Australian context, the punishment of those seeking asylum at state borders, but also of population, populations subjected to austerity regimes and sometimes those things inter interlock. 
So given the above and all of that, that description of the course, you can see why the Deskscapes project has been so crucial as a resource in the last year that I've been using it to teach in a discipline that is so deeply embedded within practices of imperialism and, and teaching it within the confines of the austerity university. So it's a resource that helps me to teach effectively against the criminological grain. The way in which the site gathers highly relevant source material that is evidence and cutting edge analysis speaking to the ways that state violence comes to target particular populations has helped me as an educator to communicate these core ideas to students. So criminology students, as many, uh, some here would know, are mostly taught about the various arms of the criminal justice system, so courts, policing, victimology, and crime is more often than not imagined, again, as being an individual, is the act of an individual against the society. So that Deathscapes is an important um, device that helps me to turn those disciplinary assumptions around and to teach students about the role of states in producing and perpetrating uh, violence um, against particular populations. So I use the site to model and to teach decolonisation from within the Imperial University since Mataji and Mayra uh, have reminded us that imperialism and racial statecraft have three fronts, military, cultural and academic. So their conceptualisation of the Imperial University links these fronts of war. For the academic battleground, they say, is part of the culture wars that emerged in a militarised nation, one that is always presumably under threat externally or internally. So students have responded to the course and the site powerfully and empathetically when they're asked to think about the role that we play as university scholars and they as university students in the issues that we study. So one student said that Deathscapes, quote, helped remove the wool from our eyes and put faces and feelings to issues that we might otherwise look at purely from an academic, emotionally disengaged point of view. I think it is important, she says, that... In, that it, in, empathy is invoked towards people whose lives should matter as much as anyone's. And that was um, a recording about Deathscapes. Deathscapes' website is www.deathscapes.org. And you just heard um, a panel, and we didn't get to play all of the panel. That will be done next week. And so far on that panel, you heard Bronwyn Carlson and Maria Janakopoulos. And there was also, um, and I'll back announce him next week, someone speaking about um, the website in general about deaths in custody and the fact that this particular um, website was established um, over, over three years. And as I said, it's called Deathscapes, in which... There is a presentation of the transna- transnational study of Indigenous deaths in custody, including misdue and refugee and asylum seeker deaths in custody and at the borders. And um, we'll be giving you more coverage um, next Monday and the Monday after as well. Just a quick correction that the recording was actually done on Saturday, the 16th of February, 2019. And um, it's goodbye from Marissa from the Do and Time Show. Thanks to Peter for um, helping to to edit the material. Um, and as I said, um, the Do and Time Show has brought this recording um, live from the symposium of the, the Deskgates project. Also, a special thank you to Charitav Singh, who is a former um, 
Time presenter who assisted me with setting up. Thanks so much. We have about three minutes left, um, three minutes until changeover for Beyond Zero coming up next. So we'll be going out now with our theme song, Black Fella, White Fella, from the Rumpy Band. Stay tuned for four o'clock next Monday till five, every Monday, for the Doing Time show. Stay strong. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.